ಶ್ರೀಗುರೋಸ್ರೀಯುತಾಕಮಲಂಶ್ರೀಗುರೂನ್ವೈಷ್ಣವಂಶ್ರೀಪಾಂಸಾಗ್ರಜಾತ್
Patanjali's commentators and, and people started writing commentaries on Patanjali's sutras uh, quite early. They have been puzzled by how Patanjali presents kind of a, a path for, for advancing in yoga in the first chapter. But then when he begins the second chapter, he kind of starts from the beginning. And the way in which most commentators have resolved this is by declaring that Patanjali is speaking to different types of practitioners in different parts of the book. This, of course, is something that Indian authors often do. They can use different kinds of terms, maybe Kanishta, Madhyama, Uttama, or something like this. But dividing practitioners into different groups like this uh, is done in many different traditions. It's not primarily done to uh, uh, give uh, different values or judgments for people. That Bindumati is an Uttama, so she's better than Brigu, who is a Kanishta, and so on. That's usually not the point. Usually the point is that different people are on different levels of their practice, and that means that they need different types of practices. So Bindumati needs one type of practice, Brigupada needs another type of practice. That's usually the point of, of dividing practitioners into different uh, groups or levels or whatever term you want to use. And that's also how Patanjali's commentators have understood Patanjali. In the beginning of the second chapter, he introduces a new term, which is Kriya Yoga. Kriya Yoga means the yoga of action. And he says that by engaging in the yoga of action, uh, one can attain a samadhi, which for Patanjali is the same as yoga, this kind of deep concentration. And one can also uh, get rid of the kleshas or the hindrances or, or uh, things that are causing different types of, of klishta or, or pain on the path. Now, this Kriya Yoga comprises three different practices. And this is an important point. In Patanjali's uh, worldview, and this is something that is, agrees with the Mahabharata and agrees with uh, Vedanta philosophers as well, all action happens on three levels. Let's say that I would... Uh, I would uh, give uh, Martin a massage. So that would be something uh, hopefully nice. I'm not sure about it, but hopefully nice that I did to him on the physical level. So that's one level, the physical level, the level of the body, the level of physical action. Similarly, uh, I could do something bad to him on the physical level. That's one level, the physical level. The next level is the level of words or the vachika level. So I could do something nice for Martin uh, verbally as well. I could uh, say something about how handsome he is and how what a nice devotee is or different nice things that he's doing. I could also do the opposite, of course. In, uh, in English, there's a saying that sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can never hurt you. And we all know that that's a total lie. 
that's not true at all. If I would, I would hit Shamananda with a stick, that would hurt for a little while. But if I would say something really nasty to him, that could hurt for a long time. And we all have experience of that. Some teacher said, uh, told us something when we were in school like 100 years ago, and we still remember that. So physical activity, verbal activity, those are two different uh, planes of karma, planes of action. And the third plane of action is mental action. So uh, I could do something nice for Martin physically, verbally, also mentally. Patanjali thinks that thoughts have effects. Uh, Obviously, in the way that if you think about something for a long time, you're going to start speaking about it and you're going to start acting on that. Uh, if I would uh, think really bad thoughts about Namarasana, for example, uh, at some point, I'm sure I would tell my wife that something blah, 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 blah. And uh, then maybe at some point I would, I would also act on it. But even if I never told anybody how I really hate Namarasana. I would always pretend I, I like, and whenever we would meet, I'd be, oh, Rasana, nice to see you. Haribol, Haribol. But deep down, I would harbor these really bad thoughts about her. What would be the problem with that? If I would never let that affect my talk or my action, what would be the, the problem? And if I was such a psychopath and sociopath that she wouldn't even know that I'm thinking badly about her, what would be the problem? Well, the problem uh, in the least would be that I would be hurting myself. The more I'm thinking bad about other people, uh, the less I would be thinking good about them. The world of the mind is a huge place. It's spacious and, and big. Uh, it's much bigger than we think. Like, for example, uh, Gornarayan. He's a strong man. So, so if I would ask Gornarayan to, to, and he would be here next to me, unfortunately he isn't, but if he would be here next to me, and I would ask Gornarayan that, Gorn, come and lift me up in the air. It wouldn't be a big problem for, for Gordon Ryan. He's a, he's a strong young man. But if I would, if I would say, Gore, take me and all of the people here on this Zoom call and uh, make us all into a kind of a human jigsaw puzzle and lift us up in the air like this and throw us out on the street outside here, that would be a bigger challenge for Gordon Ryan Prabhu. But you did it already, didn't you? In the mind. So the mind is, is very spacious. It's huge. It has so many possibilities that the physical world doesn't offer us. But it's not unlimited. It's not unlimited. If you fill your mind with negative thoughts about others, you're probably also going to start to think negative thoughts about yourself. 
and you will not have that much space for positive thoughts. So all action is carried out on these three levels, the physical level, the verbal level, and the mental level. And Panajali offers three different practices in this Kriya Yoga that work on these three levels. The first is tapas or austerity. That's on the physical level, tapas. We know the word tapas, of course, from our bhakti tradition as well. Rupa Goswami doesn't much recommend tapas. He says that too much tapas, too much tapasya, will make the heart hard and dry. And if you ever engaged in tapasya, uh, and I don't mean the kind of tapasya where you're like, okay, should I take three sweet balls or two? Okay, I'm going to be a real tapasvi and just have two. But like proper tapasya, like brahmacharya or fasting for a long time or something like that. Uh, if you've done anything like this, you probably know that it can be good in many different ways, but it can also make you really proud. That's at least the experience I had when I was a, a brahmachari. I became really, really proud and nasty. I wasn't a nice person at all. So uh, Rupa Goswami is not very fond of, of tapasya for this reason. Doesn't fit very well with bhakti. In bhakti, we're trying to make the heart softer. But in Patanjali's uh, practice, tapasya is something that he's recommending for purifying the uh, physical body. Uh, tapasya can mean many different things, of course. It can mean staying awake, it can mean fasting, it can mean celibacy, it can mean uh, taking cold baths in the winter time. It can be all kinds of things. But what is kind of definition of tapasya is that it's something that you, you do voluntarily for some particular purpose. So it needs to be voluntary. It's not tapasya if somebody's forcing you to do it then it's just you being forced. Or if you're too poor to have warm water in the morning, that's not tapasya, that's just being poor. It needs to be something that is conscious. So that's the first thing, tapasya. And the, word, the meaning of tapas, as may, many of you I'm sure know, it means heat. So it refers to, to a practice that will generate uh, inner heat, it will generate inner power. And the idea, of course, is that this power can then be utilized on the yogic path. So tapas, that's the first. The second is svadhyaya. Svadhyaya means uh, reading. But reading, not exactly as we understand reading today. If I would read a book, for example, I'm taking a book here on my, from my desk. I'd be reading it like, let's see if I can show, like this. That's how a modern person reads. We don't make a sound. If somebody reads by moving their lips or whispering, you think, we will think that that's a really simple person who just learned how to read or something. 
But in ancient times, everybody read aloud, even 300 years ago, everybody read aloud. That was the meaning of reading. Reading is uh, sitting or standing. Denna svenska turka i Amerika utgör numera det största samfundet av svenska, blah, 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 blah. So uh, you'd read aloud. And the point of that, of course, was that usually uh, you read together with some other people and others could also hear then the reading. Uh, we don't read like that nowadays because it's so much slower. And usually we read just for ourselves. So we just, it takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of uh, energy to read aloud. So we read silently and we could read much quicker. But when we want to do some sacred reading, when we want to do uh, spiritual reading, it's actually a good idea to read aloud, even if we're sitting alone. In, even if we're sitting alone in our uh, room, when we're reading something, like for example, I have Satyaraja's Six Goswamis of Vrindavan here on my desk. Another famous pastime at Radhakund involves Das Goswami's concern for the sanctity of the lake itself. Disturbed that devotees had to wash their clothes and pots in her holy waters, Raghunath Das decided to dig a well for these purposes, and so on. When I read like that, I need to read much more slowly, which gives my mind also a little bit better chance to actually catch what I'm reading. If you're people, if you are you're a person who, who likes to read and reads a lot, then probably you're the same as me in the way that you'll sometimes read many pages and realize, I actually don't remember at all what was said on those pages. I just skip, skimmed them through thinking that I want to, to advance in this book quickly, but I didn't catch the meaning at all. So svadhyaya means reading, but it means reading aloud so that you can really grasp what you're reading. And reading aloud also refers to reciting things. So a yogic practice is to, to recite texts. Like many devotees I know, for example, they read a chapter of the Bhagavad Gita every day aloud in Sanskrit or their own language, just to kind of get the feel for the text. And of course, there's also the idea that many of these sacred texts, they are written in a form that is uh, on a vibrational level affecting us. So that if we read, for example, the Sanskrit language, uh, it does something by itself, even if we wouldn't know the meaning. And this is, of course, particularly true when it comes to mantras. Manam trayate iti mantra. That's the definition of the mantra. The word that liberates the mind. So svadhyaya can refer to both uh, reading sacred texts, such as uh, Bhagavad Gita or other texts on, on, on yoga from Patanjali's perspective. Uh, or then it can refer to reciting mantras. In either case, it's a verbal activity. Tapas, physical, svadhyaya, verbal. And then the mental activity that Patanjali uh, thirdly gives 
is Ishvara Pranidhana. So he comes back here to devotion or surrender to Ishvara. For Patanjali, that's something that is primarily a mental activity. It can uh, involve verbal activities such as reciting Om. It can involve all kinds of physical activities as well. But primarily, it's something that you do with the mind or with the heart. So I spent some time describing this Kriya Yoga just to show you that from Patanjali's perspective, the yoga part is something that is supposed to take in account these three levels of the human being, the physical level, the verbal level, and the mental level. So he then goes on to speak about these kleshas that uh, you're supposed to be able to counteract by engaging in this Kriya Yoga. He then says something about the kind of metaphysics of his uh, worldview. For him, everything is made up of two principles, Prakriti and Purusha. In Vedanta, of course, there's the idea that everything comes from Brahman, whether you understand Brahman as a personal being or impersonal being. Uh, in Vedanta, everything is, is ultimately one. That's usually how it's understood. One with qualities or one and different or something like that. But there's the one in the beginning. Eko bahu syam, like said in the Upanishads, the one wanted to become many. According to Patanjali, there's two. There's Prakriti and Purusha. Prakriti is matter. Purusha is spirit. Matter and Purusha, Prakriti and Purusha, when they get together, then Prakriti starts developing and going through all different kinds of motions and cycles and, and uh, changes. Just like uh, uh, summer turns to fall and fall into winter and winter into spring and again into summer. Just like uh, a young man grows up into a middle-aged man, an old man dies and is reborn. In the same way, the whole world goes through these eternal cycles. And as long as the Purusha identifies itself with Prakriti, for such a long time, it will remain within this world. Now, Patanjali has in this way introduced two different parts to this goal of Kaivalya or or uh, liberation. The word that Patanjali uses for liberation uh, is not moksha, which is more uh, accustomed to us Vedantists. He uses a word uh, from Samkhya philosophy, and that is kaivalya. The other philosophy that Patanjali is the closest to of these uh, five other uh, schools of ancient Indian philosophy is indeed Samkhya, and sometimes Samkhya and Yoga, Yoga as a philosophy, are grouped together. In Samkhya and in Yoga, ultimate liberation is called, called Kaivalya. Kaivalya means aloneness or isolation. And it doesn't sound that nice. Sakyarati, what do you think about eternal aloneness? eternal isolation. Hmm. 
maybe not the very sad <laughs> very sad <laughs> yes but what patanjali means by this term is not that you're kind of locked up in isolation or something like that but that the purusha is isolated from prakriti completely divorced from matter and what that then actually means when purusha and prakriti are not bound up like this but purusha and prakriti go different ways about that he says nothing patanjali thinks words cannot go that far we disagree of course uh, i'm sure you've heard guru maharaj speak about ikshater uh, na shabdat in the Brahma Sutras and how, how Baladevi Diabushan understands that to mean uh, not that you cannot say anything about that liberation, but that words cannot fully express the meaning of it. It's not uh, beyond words, but it's uh, uh, something that words cannot say enough about. But Patanjali, he takes it in the other way. He thinks about whatever happens after liberation, you cannot say anything. So he focuses his description on the path towards this kaivalya or this uh, isolation of Prakriti from Purusha. Uh, Patanjali also thinks that there are many Purushas. He's a pluralist in this way. He poses the question, uh, what happens to Prakriti if the Purusha is liberated? Let's say Shamananda, he engages really, really seriously in, in practice, and then he's liberated. So does then uh, Prakriti, does then matter stop existing? No, of course not, Patanjali answers, because there's so many other Purushas still caught up in Prakriti. So like a Vaishnava philosopher, Patanjali uh, holds that there's a plurality of individual beings. Uh, I will never become Pavana Prabhu. I will never become Gornarayam Prabhu. I will never become Saragrahi. We're all uh, different from each other, according to Patanjali's philosophy. So again, this is one place where we can find some commonality. Now, after having dealt with these things, Patanjali then uh, uh, launches into towards the middle of the second chapter into the most famous part of the yoga sutra and that is the part that deals with ashtanga yoga Prabhupada called ashtanga yoga mystic yoga uh, and in today's world ashtanga yoga in the yoga community is often held to refer to one particular style of yoga it's a style of yoga where you have different series that you always follow. You use a particular kind of breathing uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, Prabhupada's term mystic yoga uh, is closer to what Patanjali actually means by Ashtanga yoga. Uh, but mystic yoga is as a term also such a mystical term so it doesn't always tell us that much about what Ashtanga Yoga actually means. It's maybe better to go with a 
more literal translation. Ashtanga Yoga means the yoga of eight parts or eight angas. Uh, this idea of an eightfold path, if you've studied uh, world religions a little bit, you might recognize it from the teachings of the Buddha. And uh, Patanjali, uh, his eightfold path is not exactly the same as the eightfold path of the Buddha, but the idea is very similar. You start with some kind of ethical, moral background to your practice. Then you build up on that with physical practices. And then gradually you get into the more internal or, or mental practices. So Patanjali says that if you follow these eight steps, you're going to uh, clear yourself of impurities. You're going to awaken the light of knowledge. And this light of knowledge will culminate in what he calls viveka kyati or discriminative discernment. Viveka kyati, discriminative discernment, means uh, the ability to see things as they are. Many times Patanjali is, is depicted as carrying a sword in his hand. Uh, what does he do with this sword? He discriminates, he cuts away the truth from falsity. He cuts away uh, evil from good. He shows us things as they are. This is an important point. In Patanjali's philosophy, uh, Patanjali doesn't believe that everything is simply an illusion. Yes, it's true that we do not see things as they are right now, generally, because of our preconceived opinions, because of our conditioning. Uh, if I look at, uh, at a book, a thick book, I don't even need to know what book it is. If I just look at the thick book, I, I think, oh, nice. Somebody else sees a thick book and they think, oh, how boring. Who could read such a boring book? Uh, neither of us sees the book as it is. There's some kind of preconceived opinion that makes one of us think that nice and the other one think boring. Or if we see another person, we might not see that person for who she or he really is, but we might see that person just in terms of what that person can do for us. So yes, we do not always see the world clearly around us, but that's because we are not having this kind of discernment. We don't have this ability yet to see things clearly, but we can train it, Patanjali is saying. We can get it, we can learn it. So uh, the way to get this kind of insight, this kind of clear vision, is by following the eightfold path of yoga. The first two of those build kind of the, the basis. They're called yama and niyama. Yama, that's the name, the same name as the god of death. It refers to, to rules. Yama is the, the god of rules, right and wrong. So yama refers to five different things. 
but Anjali loves numbers. And out of all numbers, five is clearly his favorite number. There's so many fives in the Yoga Sutra. Even this eightfold path, he divides into two parts, not four and four as any normal person, but five and three, because you need to have five. So there are five yamas. Uh, the first of those is ahimsa, nonviolence. And this is a big deal for Patanjali. He begins with ahimsa because for him, it's the main of the yamas. After ahimsa comes, for example, truthfulness. But the truthfulness that is uh, hurting, that's not yogic truthfulness. Uh, there's a famous story in the Mahabharata about a guy who decides that he's going to become the best of all yogis. I think only, only guys can decide things like this. But anyway, he decides that he's going to become the, the perfect yogi. So he builds himself a small hut in the, in the jungle. Just according to all the rules and regulations. It's just exactly the right, right size, all the right materials. And he sits there in his perfect yoga hut and he engages in yoga. And once when he's sitting there on his veranda and meditating, on a woman comes running up to him. She's completely uh, sweaty and her clothes are, are completely in a mess. And she says, oh, great yogi, please let me hide here in your, in your hut. Something terrible has happened. I don't have time to explain. And this great yogi is thinking, oh no, a woman. This is exactly why I left this material world. There she's coming with some complaint. And what kind of a woman? She's quite well formed and everything is in the right place. And But... It is said in the Shastras that you have to be merciful to all the fallen conditioned souls. So he says, yes, okay, you can go and hide there under the bed. And she goes there under the bed and then a whole bunch of men are coming running and they are having sticks and somebody is having a ax and somebody is having a pitchfork and they are shouting and screaming and they are really angry about the honor of the village and fallen woman and you can imagine the whole story so the leader of these men asks the great yogi oh great mahatma one terrible woman from our village has run away and people saw her running in this direction have you seen her and this great yogi is thinking hmm, wait a minute oh. oh yes satya truthfulness yes I have seen her. She's there under the bed. So they, they take her away and he doesn't hear anything more about this. And he goes on with his perfect yoga life. Uh, and after he's died, after his death, he ends up in hell. And he's really upset about this. How is this possible? I lived the perfect yogi life and I ended up in hell. So he goes and complains. Uh, he lodges a complaint to Chitragupta. Yama's secretary. And Chitragupta uh, takes him for an interview. 
and he explains everything that I'm sure there's been a mix up, maybe somebody else with my name, uh, maybe they died at the same time or something, but I wasn't supposed to come here. I was a great yogi. Okay, so he looks him up in his, he has this huge book, of course. So he looks him up and he finds his name and reads and, aha, mm, oh yes. Um, do you remember that one woman who once came running to your ashram? Yes, yes, I remember her quite well. She was, <clears throat> after all, quite memorable. And uh, yes, that woman. But wait a minute, I didn't do anything wrong. I did everything correctly. I first I let her hide. And then they, when they tested me and they really tested me, I stuck to the truth. Truth will prevail. Yes, that truth is what brought you to hell. So such a truth, uh, a, a truth that uh, leads to, to uh, violence, that leads to, to hurt, that's not a yogic truth. So Patanjali begins with ahimsa, ahimsa non-violence, to emphasize its, its importance. Ahimsa and satya, truthfulness. Then uh, uh, asteya, not stealing. Then brahmacharya, celibacy. And last, and by far most difficult, is aparigraha, or uh, not owning things, not collecting things. Uh, books, of course, don't count as things, but uh, everything else you can't collect. No, that's not true. But it just shows, goes to, to give you an example of how difficult uh, these seemingly simple things are. So all of these five things, they're not meant to be a checklist of who is a real yogi, that you go into a yoga, yoga class and then you ask everybody, is there anybody here who is not vegetarian? Is there anybody here who lied in the last year? Is there anybody here who, did, who looked in the wrong way at a person of the opposite sex for the last 10 years? Okay, you all go out. That's not the point. The point is that these uh, practices are all practices. We're all truthful, more or less, but maybe not in every situation. So we can practice truthfulness. We can become better at truthfulness. We can become better at nonviolence. We can become better at all of these five different practices. Because again, as I said before, they function on three different levels. You can be violent in your actions. You can be violent in your words. You can be violent in your thoughts. So Patanjali is urging us to try to minimize violence on all of these levels. Then niyama, that's the next part. That refers to things that we're supposed to do. Yamas are things we're supposed to avoid. Niyamas are things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to cultivate uh, shaucha, cleanliness, sandosha, contentness, uh, svadhyaya, sacred reading, uh, uh, excuse me, tapas, austerity, svadhyaya, sacred reading, and Ishvara pranidana, or devotion or absorption in God. So these three last ones we already heard about in the context of Kriya Yoga. So again, you see, Ishara Pranidana comes up here a third time. 
Bhakti is a very important part of Patanjali's path. Uh, maybe not kind of the central piece like it is in, in Bhakti Yoga, but it's there nevertheless. So after Yama and Niyama, these kind of foundational ethical and moral rules comes Asana. Asana means posture. Patanjali defines asana as stira sukha, uh, firm and steady. So quite different from what asana practice mostly is today in, in today's yoga world. In today's yoga world, asana practice is mostly about movement, about moving, usually coordinating the movement with the breath, but moving from one position to another. Uh, for potentially, asana is primarily about sitting. And this is the kind of asana that we will recognize from uh, the scriptures as well. This is the kind of thing that uh, we hear about again and again in uh, Mahabharata, for example. We hear about some, some sage who has been sitting for such a long time that uh, plants have covered his body or or like when Hiranyakashipu was doing his tapasya, he was standing on his toes with his hands up in the air and his eyes focused on his, his thumbs for such a long time that, that ants made an anthill around his body. So this kind of determined sitting in one place, maybe not so long that ants build a hill around your body, but still uh, not jumping around, not moving, sitting there. Guru Maharaj sometimes makes the joke that uh, ordinary people will say that, don't just sit there, do something. But the yogi will say, don't just do something, sit there. So we need to kind of learn not to jump around and do all kinds of things, but to, to focus, uh, to turn our gaze inwards. That's the idea of asana. Uh, by, by sitting down, by focusing, by uh, stopping the movements of the body, you're also stopping the movements of the mind. And then the dualities of hot, cold, happy, uh, sad, all these things, they kind of fall away. And then the yogi next takes to pranayama or control of the breath. There the idea is also to control the thoughts, to control the mind through the breath. Uh, that's something that uh, people usually experience if they take a, a physical yoga class that just like the mind is tied up with the body in so many different ways, the mind is also quite intimately tied up with the breath. Like if you become angry, for example, how that will affect the way you're breathing, or if you're, if you're upset, or if you're sad, or if you're excited or something like that, it's going to impact on your breathing all the time. Similarly, if you calm down the breathing, you can also calm the mind in the same way. And this is something we can do also uh, when we do, do our own meditative practices, such as japa, 
we can use these kind of tools of yoga, learning how to, to, to sit in the proper way, how to breathe in the proper way. They can be useful also for, for our meditative practices. But in Patanjali's world, uh, asana and pranayama, they both function as uh, uh, the first stepping stones for the internal practice. So after pranayama, the, the fourth practice, the fifth practice is pratyahara. Pratyahara means withdrawal. Uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, when Krishna speaks about pratyahara, he gives the example of the tortoise pulling its limbs into its shell. The idea is that at this stage, the yogi uh, takes his senses and kind of pulls them back. Like in our normal awareness, we're following our senses quite a lot. Let's say you're walking down the street and uh, you pass a bakery and you feel this aroma of freshly baked pastries coming out the door. And it, 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 you walk in. Or you walk somewhere and you hear somebody gossiping something really juicy. Oh. Then you go there to hear, hear more what's going, being told. So our senses are pulling uh, our minds in different directions. In Pratyahara, the yogi turns this upside down. He makes the senses serve the mind instead, instead of the mind serving the senses. So for example, uh, a Pratyahara uh, meditation on Krishna could be a meditation where the, the devotee uh, tries to think about Krishna in a way where uh, he or she can engage all the different senses. Uh, meditating on the aroma of tulsi leaves offered at Krishna's lotus feet. The tulsi leaves dipped in fragrant sandalwood paste mixed with saffron. Uh, meditating on the sound of Krishna's flute, meditating on his hair, how that hair would feel, meditating on what it would feel like to hold Krishna's hand, meditating on uh, uh, obviously what Krishna looks like. So all different kind of, of sensations maybe on tasting the tambula chewed by the Lord. So all these different uh, sensual activities that in ordinary cases pull us into worldly life can also be used to intensify our spiritual meditation. So then after Pratyahara comes uh, withdrawal, comes these different stages of meditation. The first Patanjali calls dharana or, or uh, uh, focusing. That would maybe be a good English translation, focusing. So in dharana, you're focusing the mind on the particular object you want to meditate on. Let's say you're focusing it on the Mahamantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna. I wonder what I should have for my evening snack. 
I need to remember to, to get some milk, by the way. I think we're completely out of milk. And I wonder if my daughter has done her homework. Oh, Krishna, Krishna, Hare, 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 Rama, Hare, Rama. And then again, the mind goes somewhere else. So dharana, that's when you're putting the mind there on the Mahamantra. So Patanjali's commentators, they compare this to drops of water falling from a broken faucet. Hare Krishna, blah, 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 blah. Krishna, Krishna, Hare, Hare. So these kind of drops of awareness. Then when you can keep the mind focused on the same object for some time, that's what Patanjali calls dhyana. That's the seventh practice, meditation proper. When the mind uh, seemingly is in the same place, it looks like nothing is happening in the mind, but that's kind of an illusion. Actually, it's new thoughts all the time, but all the new thoughts, they, they follow each other. So they're one-pointed. That's how he defines dhyana. Uh, tatra ekatanata dhyanam. Uh, one-pointedness, when all the thoughts, they follow each other. Thinking about Krishna, thinking about Krishna, thinking about Krishna, thinking about Krishna, like this after each other. And then the last stage, the, the ultimate stage of meditation, that's what Patanjali previously called yoga. Here he calls it samadhi. It's the same thing. When uh, uh, the mind is so focused on the object that everything else falls away. So much so that you're not even aware of thinking about that object. There's a good example from Mahabharata about this. When Drona was teaching the Pandavas archery, many of you might have heard this story before. So, so Drona takes the five Pandavas uh, out in the forest to practice their, their archery. And he tells them to look at a tree. Just look at that tree over there. You see that uh, on the that branch high up there, can you see it? There's a, 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 a big uh, pine cone. So I want you to try to, to hit that, that, uh, that the pine cone. So uh, Bhima, try to, try to hit it. First, uh, uh, take up your bow. And then uh, uh, try to, to, to aim at it. Can you see it? Yes, yes, I see it, Guruji. So what do you see? Well, I see the, the tree, and I see the branch, and I see that uh, target that you asked us to hit. Okay, shoot. Goes far off. Then uh, Yudhishthira, you also try. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. So what do you see? Well, I see the, the, the branch and I see the, the, the target. What else do you see? I don't see anything else. Okay, shoot. Pew. Still misses. Then Arjuna. Okay, Arjuna, aim. Yes, I'm aiming, Guruji. What do you see? I see the target. What else do you see? I don't see anything else. Shoot. Jump. He hits the target. So 
samadhi is when the mind is so focused on the object that everything else falls away. You're not even aware of meditating on the target. Let's say you're meditating on the Maha Mantra. You're not even aware that here Brigu is meditating on the Maha Mantra. Only the Maha Mantra is filling your mind. Patanjali calls that Samadhi. And next time we're going to hear the last um, part of this series, we're going to hear what Patanjali thinks can happen when you're able to focus the mind in this way. But I'm, I'm ending here for this time to see if there are any questions before we finish. Yes, Namarasana. Can we say that um, we can rec recognize a good advanced devotee by good quality which uh, who is presented or it's not always goes together? So like good quality is advanced devotee, yeah? So it's it's like at the rules or could be different when we can that some kind some advanced devotee uh, who did not present so nice good qualities you understand my point or not yes i think i understand it uh, that uh, you you can you can judge whether a person is an advanced devotee by seeing his his qualities and Rupa Goswami would uh, agree. He says that there are different uh, qualities that you can recognize uh, a bhava bhakta by. That person has, has taste for the holy name. Uh, he is uh, uninterested uh, in material things. That person uh, uh, doesn't want to waste even a moment outside of Krishna bhakti. And so on. So he gives these kind of, of qualities, quite uh, kind of concrete qualities that we you can judge. He doesn't say that person knows really well Sanskrit or that person uh, has a sweet smile or that person uh, has long curly hair or whatever. He, he, he really focuses on the essentials uh, in the, those verses. So that's, that's kind of qualities that we can look for. Uh, but we should also be careful not to look at the wrong things. Sometimes we, we might think that uh, an advanced devotee is also really nice in a kind of material way. And usually that person, I mean, will not be offensive or anything like that, but uh, it doesn't necessarily, an advanced devotee is not necessarily kind of this, like, uh, like, uh, uh, like a teddy bear or, or something like that. There's plenty of examples of, of advanced devotees who have been quite difficult to understand for other people. Like if we think about people like Bamsidas, Babaji, or, or even the Goswamis were not always understood by their contemporaries. So, so, so yes, there are some qualities that we can expect in, adva in, adva in an advanced devotee, but we should be careful that we don't mistake uh, kind of 
material things for spiritual things. Does that help? Anything else? Are you bored? Um, I had never heard that the, the Goswamis were not under, understood by their contemporaries. I, I've only heard this part that they were popular with both the, the gentle and the ruffians and all this because they had no envy. And uh, what, What's the story there? <laughs> well, I'm sure there are many stories, but I, I, I thought about the story about I think it was and and Maharha maybe can correct me if I'm I'm mixing up here but I think it was Sanatan Goswami no I think it was Rupa Goswami he was sitting and, and meditating and one devotee wanted to see him but this devotee uh, was a uh, I don't I'm sure you're not allowed to say this word nowadays but in the book that I read it said like this that he was a cripple so, so he, he had really hard time walking and he was walking very strangely like this. So he came there in front of Rupa Goswami to pay his, his obeisances. And Rupa Goswami started laughing. And he bowed down to Rupa Goswami, but he went away as soon as he could because he felt really offended that everybody told me that this Rupa Goswami is such a saint. And he laughed at me. I mean, I know that I look kind of strange, but that's not really nice for a saint to laugh at somebody who's a, a poor, disabled person. So he went to Sanatan Goswami, Rupa's older brother. And he said that, that I went to see Rupa Goswami and I had such a bad experience. Oh, what happened? Well, he laughed at me just because I move in such a strange way. Hmm, Sanatan Goswami said. Let's go and see him again. But this time, let's go another way. So he doesn't notice us coming. So they went another way. They went through the, the, the forest. And from a distance, they were looking at Rupa Goswami's meditation. So Rupa Goswami was sitting there deep in meditation. And he was sitting there completely still. And then he started laughing like crazy. <laughs> like that. And this, this uh, disabled person, he realized, wow, he wasn't laughing at me. He was just laughing at something else because now he doesn't even know that I'm nearby. So after a while, they went up to Rupa Goswami and Sanatana Goswami said that, that Haribol, my brother, uh, uh, let me introduce you to this devotee. And Rupa Goswami, oh, Dandavat, nice to, to see you. How nice that you would come. And he clearly didn't even know that he had been there before. He hadn't been aware of him before. So Sanatana Goswami said, Rupa, you were laughing at something. What were you laughing at so crazily? And Rupa Goswami looked at him and said, ah, it wasn't anything. Come on, tell us. This is a, a very nice devotee. Tell us what it was. And then he told that he was meditating on Krishna's pastimes and Krishna and the coward boys, they were playing and they were doing different kinds of pranks and, and uh, he was just laughing at the craziness of it all. So uh, 
sometimes they also behaved in ways that people didn't immediately understand, like this disabled person in this story. And I'm sure there were other people who didn't have the wisdom to go and ask Sanatan Goswami or somebody else uh, uh, about what they were doing. So it's possible to misunderstand devotees. And, and I mean, devotees also do stupid things. We shouldn't be kind of blind uh, against that reality. There are people who we might even think are advanced devotees, but their actions say something else. And then we just need to realize that maybe I was wrong. But sometimes it's also the opposite. Sometimes uh, devotees do things that we first judge to be strange, but then when we get to know them better, we understand, hmm, maybe it wasn't like that after all. So it's always better to, to suspend judgment for a while, not to be, be too critical when it comes to, to devotees, but also to kind of, <laughs> I guess this is a, a paradox, to at the same time also uh, retain some kind of, of uh, uh, basic common sense, not to let us be fooled into like, yeah, he's, he just uh, beat up that person, but he's a really advanced devotee, so he must have meant something good with it. It's not like that. Anything else? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to say something? Did you want to say something else? Somebody said something. Okay. Just to thank Brigitte for the answer. Can you hear me okay? Can you hear me, Brigitte? Yes. You can hear me? Okay. Yeah, so you mentioned, and I was just trying to clarify this, that reading aloud is, is, is better than reading quietly, like you can get more out of it when you read it aloud. Is that what you're saying earlier? Yes. I mean, in the sense, uh, it's not magical, but... Uh, in the sense that when you read aloud, yes. you're usually forced to read more slowly. If you're, if you're a quick reader, uh, and I don't know about you, but, but I, I am one myself. So if you're a quick reader, you often read too quickly, especially when it comes to philosophical or, or more difficult texts. I might read so quickly that I miss some things. So, so then it's better to, to kind of slow down and you don't need to read like literally aloud but because Srimadhi Radharani was their object of devotion you can just kind of form the words in your mind and then even by that you you when you need to form every single word uh, you'll pay more attention maybe you've seen on Facebook there's these things where 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 you have a, like short words like a, a passage of short words and they've scrambled all the letters so that only the first and the last letters are right and everything else is just nonsense. And in the beginning, you can't make it out, but 
when you read two lines, then you can read the rest quite easily because you kind of, your mind kind of uh, solved the puzzle. So that just shows that we people, we humans, uh, when we reach a certain level of literacy, we don't need to read every single letter. We can just kind of skip and still get the main gist. But when reading spiritual uh, topics, getting the main gist isn't always enough. You need to also kind of really go into the rasa, go into the juice of the text. And for that, it helps to, to read slowly, whether you read aloud or, or not. And of course, reading aloud uh, can have kind of the, the magical side to it also that you can you can really kind of feel how the text becomes embodied in you. Like what the Bhagavad Gita sounds like when you read it in the original Sanskrit or, or what the Bengali of the Chaitanya Bhagavat sounds like or so forth. So, so there is that kind of magic in it as well. And of course, it's, these texts are full of Krishna's names as well. So when we say Krishna's name, uh, that will also have a, uh, a special effect if we if we say it aloud. Anything else? Okay. Then it's time to to end for this time this this last uh, this third part and uh, next week will then be the the last part of this series uh, i'm also going to be on namarasa's uh, podcast tomorrow if anybody is interested uh, speaking about uh, the haribakti vilasa so so that would be fun for me at least i don't know how much fun it would be to listen to it but it would be fun to speak about it at least and of course, we have all the, the different uh, Tattva Viveka lectures going on uh, throughout the week. So I hope to see, you all, of, see all of you on, on those and then on the, the last part next week. Thank you, everybody, so much. Jai Shishi Guru Gauranga Gandharu Kegiti Dari Shishi Radha Vandar Mohan Radha Govindar Ragopinata Radha Damada Radha Shamsundar Radha Damada Radha Gopurana Radha Malavada Jagopalli Tai Goshi Sharbuj Giri Raja Ki Jai Jai Vishnu Bhargang Supravaja Kacharya Stotra Shitashi Shimad Bhaktivedanta Tripurari Dev Goswami Maharaj Lagurdev Ki Jai Jai Nitilibrishna Vishnu Pada Bhai Charanara Vinda Bhaktivedanta Swami Maharaj Lagurdev Ki Jai Jai Nitilibrishna Vishnu Pada Bhaktivedanta Dev Goswami Maharaj Ki Jai Jai Nitilibrishna Vishnu Pada Bhaktivedanta Sarasati Goswami Maharaj Lagurdev Ki Jai Jai Gurkishwadas Bhaktivedanta Dev Maharaj Ki Jai Joy Shatidana Namoitakur Bhaktivinoda Ki Jai Joy Vaishnava Sharvava Mashlatavanata Svavachi Maharaj Ki Jai Joy Gudivaranta Charshlatarade Bidibushan Kavu Ki Jai Joy Vishnu Chakratitakur Ki Jai Joy Shinivasamana Narottam Prabhutrai Ki Jai Joy Krishnadas Kavaraj Gusamaraj Ki Jai Joy Vyasavata Shri Brindamadastakur Mashai Ki Jai Joy Shirupasanatana Bhattaraganata Shri Jeeva Gopala Bhattara Shoganachar Goswami Prabhu Ki Jai Joy Namacharishla Haradastakur Ki Jai Joy Premsakosha Krishna Chaitanya Pramitjananda Shri Advaita Gritara Shvasari Shri Gaur Bhaktarani Ki Jai Joy Shri Antaradvip Mayapur Shimantaradvip Madhidvip Poladvip Reputip Chandadvip Madhidvip Modhradvip Odhradvip Rudhutipatmaka Shri Navadvip Dham Ki Jai Joy Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gopakupakoku Varadana Dvadashvanatmaka Shri Vrindavan Dham Ki Jai 